Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, as always, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and that is always appreciated to see. In this week's show, we're going to start out talking about lessons that I've learned in the past year regarding COVID-19. This upcoming week, for me, is the one-year anniversary of my last day working in a physical office because of this. My old job went remote after this, and my new job is wholly remote. So, what are the main lessons that I've gotten from this? Well, the first main one is that I don't think I'm ever going to trust the CDC and FDA ever again. We'll get into why on that. I do have some specific reasons on that point. In the second segment, I'll cover the latest numbers on the coronavirus and also, if you're in America, why you don't want to be in Europe right now when it comes to vaccines. And then we'll wrap up the light item segment with a look at all the lavish praise Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has gotten from the national media. So make sure to stick around for that. So that's the agenda for this week's show, so we can jump right in. So I mentioned that you know, my main takeaway is that I'm not going to trust the, the FDA or CDC ever again. And this topic of, of what I've learned in the past year, it came up while I was listening to a conversation on the new social media app Clubhouse this past week. If, if you haven't heard of it, it's a new social media network focused only on audio. So... It's sort of hard to pitch what it is, but it's a little bit like getting on a big conference call, except it's more social media friendly. You can see who's on there, and people can pop in and out as they please. You can see a room with a certain topic where people are talking. You can follow certain people that you know talk and do things that you like. So it's pretty interesting from that respect, and because it's sort of informal and impromptu, you can find some pretty interesting things. So I haven't personally I haven't decided how I'm going to use it yet, but I could see having fun with it in the future. But I was listening specifically to a conversation this past week about from in and between different writers and journalists that I follow, and they were talking about how living with COVID-19 and various lessons that they've learned from the past year, what's changed, what have been the impacts because you know, it's March 2021, we're almost a year away from the first state lockdowns. If you were thinking back around to this point, this time last year, the sports leagues had started to shut down at this point. And for most Americans, they internally date the beginning of COVID-19 and the in the national impact it had back to March. That's when the coronavirus first hit the, you know, the complete and total national consciousness that we were all facing the same thing together at the same time. 
And as I said, what's changed for me is, is, is that I don't have any more faith in the public health establishment, specifically the FDA and CDC, Anthony Fauci on down. They've just been a complete and utter disaster in responding to this in a truthful and honest way. And it's really hard to overstate how badly they failed uh, this pandemic. So I've got a column coming out, and it should come up late on Friday. If you're on the Conservative Institute's mailing address, you should get that column sooner in your inbox. But anyway, in that column, I'm talking about how public health officials and politicians have always lagged human behavior when it comes to this pandemic. And here's how you prove that. You look at when did economic behavior nosedive versus when did governments start taking action. So you have to remember, when you're collecting any form of data, that is always going to be a lagging indicator because you're going to get that information, but that is information on things that have already happened. And so the best information that we have is some of the weekly and sometimes daily economic behaviors. And when you go back to that time, you see very early behavior. And so what that is telling us is that the, Amer- the American people were taking actions economically in different ways. The very earliest actions you see in the United States come from Donald Trump and Senator Tom Cotton. They had the travel restrictions in China, which began in January, which Democrats at the time blasted and disagreed with, and you had all kinds of accusations that these were racist things. But regardless, you get that January th- uh, situation where we have the travel restrictions with China. After that, the next major round of government actions don't come into place until late March. In fact, the first uh, stay-at-home order doesn't come until March 19th, and that was in California. And after that, you started seeing other states start trickling in with their own. Uh, Here in Tennessee, we didn't have our first stay-at-home order until April the 2nd, so that was even a little bit later. And so you, you had these first wave of you know true lockdown orders happening you know mid to late March, and so that's when your your lockdown orders came into place. Uh, but if you're if you go if I mean if you're going by that, that's when you people start to say okay this is when we were truly locked down. But if you actually look at the economic data, we were already in a recession by the time those lockdown orders came into place. The National Bureau of Economic Research, which tracks these things, says that the United States actually entered a recession in late February. American economic activity dramatically dropped off in the second half of February as both Americans and businesses took it upon themselves to get far more careful. So this is when you started seeing uh, Americans, they just stopped going to things like restaurants and bars and theaters and any place that you could congregate like that. Yes, they were still going on in late February, but people were far more conscious of going to these events. They weren't wearing masks at this point because... Well, we'll get into why they weren't, but you still had this this moment in the last two weeks of February and the first two weeks of March before the lockdown orders, before you see this FDA and CDC guidance start coming out, where Americans were the ones who withdrew. Americans were the ones who were concerned. I know at this point in late February, there were people who were withdrawing their kids from schools already. In late February, I had already sent an email to a friend. I think I shared this in the newsletter about a month or two ago, where I was telling her, okay, you need to prepare, 
get some supplies together because there is the possibility where they could tell us to have, we have to stay home for a month. And that's all I was thinking. I was thinking, well, I've seen this happen in China. I've seen these stories where they are locking their people in their houses. We could have just orders here where they could do that. So you need to be prepared. And I didn't know how long it would last, but I did know that there was a possibility of this coming, and then it happens about a month later. So you get this economic data, and what it tells you is that governments and politicians lagged the human behavior. They were lagging their own citizens. Americans had already locked down in large part because we were in a recession they had pulled back so much. And so that's what the column is about, where you have all this activity where Human behavior is saying we're withdrawing without any input from the public health officials because we can see this is coming and we need to react. Now, here's something else that you may have forgotten. How late we got the mask mandate. Now, remember, economic activity is dead now, and public lockdown orders are in place starting in March. The CDC doesn't come in and give its first guidance to wear masks until April 2nd, 2020. So that's how late we are here. We're, we're in a recession. People have already, you know, they've already done these things. And then, peop- and then you get the lockdown orders, and it's not until April where you get your first mask mandate. And if you look around now, you see this freakout over, you know, Texas lifting its mask mandate when cases are plummeting and then there's vaccines everywhere. And it makes sense that you can do that in some of these places. And yet there's no freakout that the CDC waited practically two to three months here before issuing their first one. That's where your, your freakout should have been. And it's just, this is their unique failure. And there's two failures I want to cover here, both with the FDA and the CDC. And it covers masks and testing. I'll link to all of this in the notes. Uh, but we're going to start out here going through through uh, the the testing, that was the main problem early on, because testing is the true reason that we actually had to do those March lockdowns, even though we knew about this in January. And this was a very unique failure because it was by the FDA, and it is their fault that we didn't have testing for months. Even though, if you look at the progress of our vaccines, the vaccine makers were able to sequence and start testing out potential vaccine ideas in January, February, March. That is when our solutions were built. Pfizer, Moderna, all of them had the first idea of what they were going to do in January or February, and they were already building testing protocols by then. That's how fast they were. The exact opposite happened at the FDA when it came to building tests. And I've cited this piece of the dispatch several times. I, I won't even say I've probably read it off here. It is worth revisiting when you're talking about these two government agencies because the FDA is where things failed early on. And this is, I learned this lesson early on when we were going through it and coming back here and looking back over lessons and seeing how the FDA has continued basically to do the same thing. They're, they have been the roadblock to finding success and ending this pandemic quickly. It started out with them messing things up, and it has continued on with them messing things up. So here are some key passages from that dispatch article. So on January 31st, HHS Secretary Alex Azar declared a public health emergency, which initiated a new requirement. Labs that wanted to conduct their own coronavirus tests must first obtain emergency use authorizations and EUA from the FDA. Now, if you remember, this is the exact same thing that these vaccine makers are getting right now. 
According to reporting from Reuters, the emergency declaration made it more difficult to expand testing outside the CDC. That's because the declaration required diagnostic tests developed by individual labs, such as those at hospitals or universities, to undergo greater scrutiny than in non-emergencies, presumably because the stakes are higher. Quote, paradoxically, it increased regulations on diagnostics while it created an easier pathway for vaccines and antivirals, said Dr. Amesh Andijala, a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Quote, there was a real foul-up with diagnostic tests that has exposed a flaw in the United States pandemic response plan. So this was the moment when the wheels came off the bus. Keith Jerome, the lab director at the University of Washington Virology Lab in Seattle, told the New Yorker how this perverse how perverse this heightened standard was from a public health perspective. Quote, from the point of view of the academic labs, we look at it like when there's any run-of-the-mill virus that people are used to, they trust us to make a test. But when there's a big emergency and we feel like we should really do something, it gets hard. It's a little frustrating. We've got a lot of scientists and doctors and laboratory personnel who are incredibly good at making assays, which is part of the testing, What we're not so good at is figuring out all the forms and working with the bureaucracy of the federal government, end quote. EUAs were intended to speed up the normal authorization process. But in this case, labs that were already conducting their own coronavirus tests needed to cease operations until they were granted an EUA. By declaring a public health emergency and not waiving EUA requirements, the FDA was actually slowing down the testing process. And then from there, and that's the end of the where I'm going to quote from there, what we know happened is that the FDA then proceeded to mess up their own tests and the CDC tests. This was in January. This was happening in January and February. So this is all goes down January 31st. And this is the same time we have the travel ban, and the FDA proceeded to bungle and create so many delays in the testing process that we didn't have adequate testing until about May or June. And I'm being very generous with what I define as adequate here. So that is four to five months that were wasted. That is why we had to lock down, because we could not figure out what was happening. Every last single person should have been fired off this one thing, but of course, there's no accountability here. At the peak of our testing for COVID-19, the fall and winter, when we finally had shrugged off all the issues with the FDA, we were doing close to 2 million tests a day. And at the end of March of 2020, as a country, we were barely testing 100,000 people on average a day. That was nowhere near enough at any point. Across the entire country, during, during the spring surge, we only had a confirmation of around 30,000 new cases a day at the highest point in the averages. But we had a peak of nearly 60,000 hospitalizations. That's one of the reasons why I, so early on, I focused in on hospitalizations because we didn't have the testing to tell us exactly how many new cases we have, but you could tell how bad it was by looking at the hospitalizations. So in the summer, when we faced a nearly identical surge, over the southern and midwest states on the hospitalizations front, it peaked at around 60,000. 
the number of confirmed cases coming in in a single day, it peaked at around 75,000 in a single day. And we were testing close to 800,000 to 900,000 people a day at that point. We weren't even close to our peak of 2 million. And so that tells you how many cases we were missing in that spring area due to the FDA and others. We could we were probably we were missing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cases in the spring. And that continued on in the summer because we continued to build up our testing capacity. So both of those surges were roughly the same. In fact, you could probably count those both as the initial first surge. It's just that because New York was so colossally bad and Cuomo was so bad at handling that surge, he did not, he, you know, he they didn't have a summer surge like the rest of the country. They were still coming down. But then when you hit the winter surge and everything was coming back, all his proclamations of how he had solved this winter thing and everything was good and he wrote his book, he got the winter surge just as bad as everyone else. So the winter surge had much more testing, and new cases surged to nearly 300,000 in a single day, and with a peak of 132,000 hospitalizations, which should tell you that this was much more severe than either of the previous two surges. In fact, you could have combined the first two surges and would not have equaled what we saw in the winter surge. It was much worse. And so we actually had the testing to sort of know what was happening during this period of time. And then when you add in asymptomatic spread, we know it was worse. We know there was far more spread in the spring and the summer, and that's what allowed it to spread more quickly in the winter. But we only know this because we have the testing to figure it out. We didn't have that, and we were delayed four to five months because of the FDA, because of the red tape of the FDA. And when you really break down what Operation Warp Speed did... It looked at these situations in the FDA and said, we've got to get rid of these regulations. They are literally killing us in this, in this case because we can't do anything unless they are out of the way. And so the more we cut those regulations, the better off we were in the end. That was the genius of Operation Warp Speed, and the, neither the FDA or the CDC ever quite realized that this was the case, that they were the roadblocks to us solving this pandemic. And remember, that's actually why we had to do the the lockdowns in March and April. It's because the FDA so thoroughly failed its job. Once we were able to get at least adequate testing, you know, the bare minimum, we could actually start to open up because we could say, okay, we know kind of where the virus is at this point, so we can open up certain parts of the country and sort of deal with this on a region-by-region basis. So that's the first failure, and there have been others from the FDA, but that is the first one. The other thing they've done is that they have done a good job, and this was noted in that dispatch speech early on, and that was back in March, mind you, that it was going to be easier to get these vaccine approvals through, and that has been true. But they trimmed some time off of it, but it's pretty clear when you're watching what they were doing, they could have trimmed even more time off. We watched them say, we everyone knew... The thing about this is if you look at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine specifically, everyone knew in February that the FDA was going to approve this. It's just we had to wait a month for them to work through their red tape in order to do what we already knew they were going to do. There wasn't a single scientist or researcher that thought that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was not going to be approved. And yet we still had to wait, even though we already had the results of their phase three, we just had to let them jump through all of the hoops. And so it's these red tape things where the bureaucrats do not realize that they are literally the thing 
that is preventing a cure from hitting the market. So that's another thing, and that is also on the FDA's hands. They were at the beginning and the end here causing all of these delays. So in the UK, especially on this vaccine front, if you compare the UK and the FDA, their version of the of the FDA, they had their version and their health services working alongside these vaccine manufacturers in real time. So when it came time for approval, they had already seen everything, and they just said, yeah, we approve it. We've seen their phase three. We approve it pretty much at the same time as they were releasing their phase three. That's what allowed uh, the UK in particular to approve AstraZeneca and some of these others and then immediately start vaccinating people. They didn't have to wait for their bureaucrats to get moving here. If we were able to force the FDA into this kind of model, we could have trimmed months off the vaccine rollout. We had, you know, we were able to do this in under a year. It's pretty clear looking at some of this, we could have done this even faster. I understand waiting through the phased testing results with all these manufacturers. You kind of understand wanting to go through multiple phases just to find out what happens in a large population. How can you, you know, convince people that this is a good thing? I get that part of it. The bureaucrat slowing things down and adding months to the process makes very little sense. So those are the failures of the FDA. <clears throat> but that's nowhere near potentially the worst single failure of the pandemic. I think those are bad and they're in, in very bad in their own unique ways. But the worst arguably comes from Anthony Fauci and the CDC. Because they made the decision, and this is the second thing that really teased me off on this point, their decision was that they were going to start lying to the American people. And you don't have to take my word that they were lying. Fauci has publicly said as much on this point. So this is from an interview from The Street where Fauci was talking about the spring. This was an interview back in the in June. I believe it was June or July. And I, again, I'll link to it if you want to go through it yourself. But he talks about the spring and specifically the mask mandates. And this thing says, Fauci also acknowledged that masks were initially not recommended to the general public so that first responders wouldn't feel the strain of a shortage of PPE. He explained that public health experts were concerned the public health were concerned the public health community and many people were saying this were concerned that it was a time when the personal protective equipment, the PPE, including the N95 masks and the surgical mask, were in very short supply. By early April, the strategic national stockpile had been depleted, and around the same time, President Trump invoked the Defense Production Act to have manufacturing chains across the U.S. focus on making vital medical equipment, such as ventilators and masks. Fauci continued to say that they wanted to give as many masks as possible to the frontline workers and emergency personnel. Quote, we wanted to make sure that the people, namely healthcare workers, who are brave enough to put themselves in harm's way to take care of the people you know were infected with the coronavirus and the danger were getting infected, we wanted to make sure that they were the ones who get that. And he concluded that. So he's dressing this all up here as we had an issue with PPE shortage, mainly mask shortages, N95 shortages, ventilators, and all those sorts of things. So what we did, instead of telling this thing to the American people, what we told them was is that you didn't need to wear masks. That's a lie. You did need to wear a mask. And the American public could have used various things to wear even, you know, a small, a, you know, a lesser form of a mask because it was very clear if you had common sense that this thing was spreading through the air, particularly if you were indoors. This was clear in March and April, and they were saying, no, don't wear a mask. 
The CDC's guidelines specifically said don't wear a mask. The WHO, World Health Organization, they were saying the same thing. In fact, the WHO was the worst. They were saying it didn't spread person to person through the air anyway. They they were the absolute worst here. And the fact that Joe Biden is going to refund that organization without as so much as even saying one thing shows what a weak person that he is. We should be hammering the WHO and what they did and how they are currently covering for China because China is trying to get them to produce a report that says that somehow this, this thing came from frozen food distribution, which is a complete and total conspiracy theory. We know it came from China. We know they're responsible. We know that much. We know they're hiding everything else. And so anything the WHO puts out at this point, should be treated as utterly, completely suspect because they are covering for China. That's a whole other rant. But here we see and we know that Fauci is trying to dress up the fact that he lied about masks because he was worried about shortages. I get the impulse of wanting to get masks to public health workers. That's fine. But he shouldn't have needed to lie about that because that lie and flipping it later on when you're issuing a mask mandate created a world of distrust in the American people because they saw, well, if you knew we needed masks, we could have been wearing these all along. And when people knew masks were needed, you saw people jump in and say, well, we will, we'll make masks. We'll make masks for, first, you know, for health care providers. We will do our part here. People happily jumped in. But instead of having that early on, Fauci and his friends created a mountain of mistrust here, and, and you know it made sense why it exists, because people were lied to. They broke in the middle of a pandemic, they panicked, they decided they needed to lie because they needed these to go to certain people, instead of just being truthful and saying, hey, we have shortages, we've got to get these healthcare workers. You have to be honest with the people on these points, and they were not. And that caused instant distrust flat-out instant distrust that has continued on. That decision at that point created a lot of problems. Now, you could say that I've got the wrong read on this, but I will say this. The alternative to my take, because I'm saying that he's lying here, that they advocated basically a noble lie, if you go back and study philosophy, that's what this is, the other alternative is it comes from Scott Gottlieb, who was talking about masks on the Sunday shows, specifically CBS, and I'll let him explain his 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 opinion here, which basically boils down to they didn't know if, whether or not people needed masks. So here's Scott Gottlieb on um, the CBS Sunday show. You know, we look back at some of your remarks from a year ago. You've been pretty on the money with your predictions. Um, but at this time a year ago, we weren't wearing masks. We weren't told to until April by the federal government. Now we're being asked to continue wearing them. Um, From where you sit, is that the biggest mistake? I mean, how would you grade our performance as a country? I think the masks are the single biggest mistake because it was the easiest intervention that we could have reached for early to prevent spread. I think this was a real failure to detect all of the asymptomatic spread. We overestimated the role of fomites, of contaminated surfaces in spraying this virus because we weren't recognizing all the spread that was happening from asymptomatic individuals because we weren't doing good tracking and tracing. We were using a flu model to detect COVID spread and it wasn't applicable. So CDC was very slow to recognize this. If we had recognized earlier 
all the spread through asymptomatic transmission and the fact that this is spreading not just through droplets but also aerosolization in closed environments, we probably would have recommended masks and high quality masks much earlier. So that was probably the single biggest mistake, mm -hmm. largely because it was the single easiest intervention that we could have reached for early. So there are your two options. They either knew masks would work because this thing was highly transmissible, or they were, you know, and they were lying about it, or they just flat out didn't know what they were doing, as he explained there. And I'll, you know, I'll let you make your your choice there. I tend to look at what Fauci says is that they knew it was more highly transmissible than they thought, and they knew that they were, even if it wasn't, they knew that they needed to get masks to their healthcare workers, and they didn't want a shortage, so they lied about it. Your pick. You can take his version or mine. It could be a little bit of both. Either way, the CDC is not covering itself in glory here because it's showing that it was pretty clear from my vantage point looking at this, this thing was transmissible through the air. If you just looked at what was happening in China, that made itself abundantly clear. All the other stuff about, you know, you know, doors and surfaces, I could see that, but it was pretty clear that wasn't the issue when you were looking at China. But either way, it doesn't look good, and the CDC failed on this point, and because they did what they did, they created this mistrust that has continued on. They panicked, and they caused distrust by lying or just flat out being bad at their job. So those are my primary takeaways from COVID-19 over the past year, and these are just my first ones. I have a lot of others. You can talk about personal life and things like that, but my main takeaways is that the public health establishment is in particular awful, and we really need to think about replacing every person involved because it's not just that they're bad, it's that they have not figured out why they were bad and why they, they missed so many of these predictions and so many of these different things. And aside from the public health establishment, if I were moving on from there, the next thing I would say that I've lost all trust in, and granted, I didn't have a ton for this particular group, but my opposition to public health, public sector unions is now at 100%. I completely and entirely oppose public sector unions, and that includes everything from police unions to teachers unions, all of them. Police unions are preventing much needed change from happening in a great deal of many places, when it comes to policing, things that could make all these flare-ups we see with policing practically every year now, we could fix a lot of them if we could just institute some change if, and police unions weren't there to prevent us. And we should be able to because these are public institutions and we should be able to bring political change to these kinds of institutions. Unions should not be a block to those sorts of things. The same goes for teachers' unions on that front. And on COVID-19 in particular, teachers' unions have just been awful. They've been an outright embarrassment. And it is pretty clear, particularly in some of these deeply blue cities, that they don't care one lick about a single kid in any of them. And there was a specific example from this past week out of California where, and there have been others, this is not just a pick on California, but there was one in particular, the L.A. County Union, they voted... 91%, 91% against returning to in-person classes. You really can't make this stuff up because, Gavin, I'm going to read you here, the news article here, and I would say this, Gavin Newsom, Democrat, far left, 
I could actually defend some of the stuff he's done during the pandemic. I think he, if you're comparing him and and uh, and Florida, sort of what they've done, they've both taken a lot of heat in California and Florida. When you really start comparing it, they've done a pretty good, decent job. They just responded to different political pressures. California has a lot more Democrats, Republican more. I mean, Florida has more Republicans, so the way they handled reopening and stuff like that is going to look different. But they've done a great job on the early lockdowns. They did a great job on vaccines. And yet they are have taken a lot of heat. But here's this story. I think Newsom is on the right path here because he's trying to reopen schools. So Gavin Newsom signed a $6.6 billion legislative package Friday that offers incentives for schools to resume in-person instruction for students up to second grade by April 1st and provides funds to help recoup learning lost during the COVID-19 pandemic, possibly by extending the school year. But when Los Angeles Unified School District campuses reopen for students, whether they do that remains unclear. Members of the powerful United Teachers of Los Angeles Union voted overwhelming this week to demand three conditions before returning to class, including vaccinations of all teachers and staff, and a further reduction of the county's rate of new COVID-19 infections. Newsom signed the school reopening legislation on a Zoom ceremony attended by a host of legislative and education leaders. He pointed to achievements being made in the fight against the virus, including the now 2.1% testing positivity rate in the state. 2.1%. And the newly surpassed milestone of 10 million vaccinations administered. More than all but five nations in the world. To be where we are today, he says, a week or so away or less, with many more counties moving into less restrictive tiers, this is the right time to sign this bill, Newsom said. It's the right time to safely reopen in-person instruction in our schools, focusing on those cohorts that are the most impacted by this pandemic. The legislation creates a $2 billion incentive pool with money doled out to schools that reopen campuses for students in pre-kindergarten through second grade, as well as higher-need students of all ages. The money will go towards safety improvements, such as ventilation systems and protective equipment. The proposal does not order schools to reopen, but those that fail to do so by April 1st will lose 1% of their share of the funds for every day they miss the deadline. The money will be available to schools in counties that have an average daily new COVID-19 case rate of less than 25 per 100,000 residents, which covers the vast majority of the state, including Los Angeles County. Now think about that for a second. Less than 25 cases per 100,000 people. According to union presidents, uh, the union president, 24,850 union members cast ballots and 91% of them supported the union's demands. That's powerful, she said. The UTLA members have voted overwhelmingly to resist a premature and unsafe physical return to school sites. End quote. So I want to recover, cover two numbers that Newsom dropped in this news story. 2.1% positivity rate and 25 per 100,000 25 cases per 100,000 people in a county. This is LA County we're talking about here. They meet that thing and the entire state has a positivity rate of 2.1% which is half the national average. The national average is around 4. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but it's closer to 4 than it is 2.1. So that is how low it is there. And they're saying no to reopening. So here's the deal. 
any human being, any person in the United States that claims that teachers are endangered in any way by in-class instruction is dealing in fear-mongering and conspiracy theories. I mean, this is the worst of fear-mongering and conspiracy theories because there is not a shred, not even the slightest bit of evidence to say that in-class instruction is dangerous. Not a bit. Seriously, go look at, at the latest studies with the CDC. I think I've even read off a few here. The CDC has studied this numerous times. They've released multiple things here. And I, you know, I've blasted them, but they have released studies on this exact question in multiple places asking, are schools dangerous? And the results are consistently the same. Schools are not dangerous to teachers or to students. Schools are not a super spreader site and they're not dangerous. So, I mean, there was even this one, I'm thinking here off the top of my head, that there was this university study that showed that the spread of COVID-19 on a college campus was lower than the community that was around it. The spread, so the positivity rate was lower on campus than it was in the community around it. That's crazy to me, just to think about it. But these schools are not super spreader sites. They're not dangerous and when these teachers say, when they say that it's premature to go back and it's unsafe, that is clearly a lie. There is no truth to it. There is no way you can claim that from the CDC studies, from the numbers we have, from just California's numbers alone. 2.1% in a state that big with that many people, it's not a threat. Because that is, the, that is half the national rate, and that is lower than you're going to find anywhere, anywhere else. If the United States hits 2%, we're going to be fully reopened because they're going to say, oh, this is not enough cases for us to even remotely be concerned. So this is my second, this is, you know, I guess this will be my third major takeaway from 2020, is that, and that's public sector unions just flat out have to go. These people are not interested in doing their jobs, and no state should have to listen to these kinds of demands. These are things that we should not take seriously at all. These unions should be forced back to go, one, to go back to work, and to provide basically basic services here that people need. This is why they go to some of these states, that's why they move into some of these communities, that you're expecting some level of service, and if your government can't produce that because a non-government entity is preventing that from happening, then we need to revisit why that is being allowed to happen. Because remote education as a whole is a disaster, particularly for the, you know, K through 12. That is a disaster, and any union that claims otherwise on that point. We have now lots of stories and lots of studies that remote learning is a disaster, and in-person education is not a threat. So these unions have to be forced back. They've got no leg to stand on. They're just flat out not wanting to do their work. And my opposition to public sector unions, after seeing some of these things come out, it was already high, admittedly, coming into 2020. After this, I have no doubt in that position. We've got to get rid of them to allow real reforms and real changes to happen, both in policing and teaching and more, because this is this cannot be allowed to happen and to go forward. This is not something we need to deal with. So... Those are my takeaways from 2020 so far and COVID-19 as we come here, hopefully towards the end of the pandemic. I'd like to hear from yours. If you've got some, let me know. Maybe we can do a clubhouse about it. I don't know. But I want to take a great quick break here. When we get back, we'll talk about the latest numbers on the coronavirus nationally and go from there. 
So Sunday was the last day for the COVID tracking project, who has been collecting and reporting daily on the various numbers throughout the United States. I mentioned this last week. So this is the last week I'm able to use them, but the last week a lot of people are going to be able to use them, and that is going to be an issue for a lot of journalists moving forward just because they have been so helpful and so accurate in their numbers. So I'm not sure where I'm going to be able to replace some of this information because they have been some of the only places you can find hospitalization data, for instance. So we'll hit that again. But I'll work on that over the next few weeks. I've tried to replace some of their data last week, try to get ready for some of this. And I, I can, I've got most of it covered uh, but I do want to start out by saying I did misread. I switched to the CDC's data last week on vaccinations, and I didn't quite have some of it right because I had misread one of the data sources on them. Uh, I'd said that they that we had vaccinated 75 million people last week, and in reality, we had administered 75 million doses, but not vaccinated fully 75 million people. They break that number up a little bit differently than Bloomberg does, which is another vaccine tracker that I use. I have these linked if you just want to check them out and look at them. Bloomberg is a little bit more easy to read and user-friendly, and the CDC's data is, well, it's a little difficult to get through, especially when you're trying to look for some certain averages and things like that. But that said, the COVID tracking project has been a great resource. I wish them well. I wish they would keep going to the very end of the pandemic. That would be very nice. But I can see why they would want to stop at least at some point here because it is expensive to keep something like this going. So here's where we stand this week. The seven-day average on testing sits at 1.4 million people or 1.4 million tests and seems to be trending down a bit right now. Uh, about a month or two ago, we were in the 1.8, 1.9 million range. Now we're down to 1.4, so we've lopped probably between 300,000 to 500,000 off our overall numbers. So things are trending down a little bit. As I've said for weeks, though, I think we should expect this to some extent just because testing is becoming less and less important as we're moving forward. It's good to know if we need surge capacity testing that we can do it, but it is becoming less and less important to test moving forward, and the number of new cases we're coming in that are coming in on a daily basis just isn't that important right now. We're not in a surge situation. We're not in a deeply, you know, you're there, it's not a problem, the number of cases that we see coming in. It is fine if we're treading water on that front. So testing coming down a little bit, but still fine. The positivity rate on tests is where things are getting a bit wonky, and that's primarily because everybody is changing their information. So I normally pull the positivity rate from Johns Hopkins University, and they are reporting a positivity rate on new tests this week at around 5 to 6%, which is higher than what the COVID-19 tracking project was doing. The COVID tracking project was saying that we were around 4.5% last week. And so now Johns Hopkins is saying we're up around 5 or 6%. I don't think that Johns Hopkins number is correct because I think they're trying to get a little cute with some of their information. Um, it's just a different way of reading the information, so it's reading a little bit higher. Uh, and so, it, you know, this is whatever you're going to see with every every site. So I think because people are having to transition from the COVID tracking project to some of these other data sets, you could see some journalists saying, well, there's you know, there's an uptake in positivity this week, there's more cases. That's not really the case from what I can tell. 
you can run these yourself just by looking at how many tests there were in a given day and then look at how many of those came back positive and then just kind of look at trend lines because that's basically what I did here because I don't think that the positivity rate is at 5 or 6%. If you just take the last few days of information from the COVID tracking project, if you take the last three days in particular and you average those out, the positivity rate from those is at 3.87%. You might get something closer to 4% if you went into and did a full seven day. I did not want to take the time to do that. So I just took the last three days and averaged them out and we've we're below 4%. I tend to think that we're below 4% nationally just because, you know, we talked about California being at a 2%, and it would make sense that you're seeing some of these lower numbers here as vaccinations are going up because that is the trend line that we've seen in other countries like Israel. So I don't tend to think that we are in the 5 to 6% range. Obviously, we're not talking about big changes here. But I do think the positivity rate is trending lower, and it is likely it's either at 4% or it's just below that. So things are trending lower, and that suggests that vaccinations are working because we've never been below 4%. The lowest point we were at before this was like one day at like 4.1 or 4.2%, and that was after the summer surge. So the fact that we're at this rate with this much testing says that the virus is far less prevalent right now than at any point that it's been since the spring. That is extremely good news. That's why you know, I, I wish the COVID-19 COVID tracking project wasn't leaving because it would be nice to be able to continue to compare their data as we sort of ease out here. But we'll do the best with what we have here. So the positivity rate, I believe, is below 4%. Johns Hopkins is saying it's somewhere around 5 to 6%. Either way, it's low. It should continue to, drip, uh, to dr- drop lower. And that's because the number of new cases coming back and backs up that lower percentage. They've continued to trend down. So the daily average of new cases coming in is at around 57,000. And on Sunday, we only saw 41,000 come in. So this is, and remember, this is a national number. So you're spreading this out over the entire countries, like Tennessee had like twelve or 1,300 come in in a day, which is low compared to where we've been. So these are sustainable numbers. We can be at this point because you have to remember 40 to 50,000 people getting it in a day pales in comparison to where we are on the vaccine front. You have to compare new cases to do vaccinations. That is your comparison That is what you have to remember in all of that because this is what tells you whether or not we're progressing or not. So we'll get to that here in a second because I want to cover hospitalizations because that's going to be hard to replicate here in the next few weeks. I actually don't know if I'm going to be able to cover hospitalizations, even though it could be the most single most important metric in measuring this entire thing because hospitalizations tell you whether or not you need to take policy interventions such as lockdowns or other things. I don't think we're going to have to, though, because current active hospitalizations sit right at 40,000 this week. So they're continuing to drop. And that is below the spring and summer peaks. That is nearing our all-time lows during in-between peak periods. I really want to see this drop below 30,000. That would be my goal here. You want to see another 20,000 come off this, or another 10,000 come off this number. You want to see it drip below that 30,000 because we've never done that. You'd have to go before the spring before you would see a number that low. So that is the number that I'm going to continue to try to monitor. I'm going to try to track that down because that is the most important one to me, along with watching daily case numbers drop. So those are the most important things here. The The death count continues to remain elevated, 
and it's staying stubbornly high again at around 1700 That's about where it was last week. Again, lower than where we were at 3200 a day, but this is still quite a daily toll. You want to see this drop below 1500 and then 1000 It is drifting down. It's just not drifting down fast enough. That is probably due to the elevated hospitalizations, though. You will probably see it start dropping significantly once we get below the six the uh the probably about the 35,000 range we hit that you will see death start significantly dropping at that point but the good news as always remains vaccinations because we are just flat out flying on vaccinations according to the CDC's numbers we've we've administered so this is just total vaccine doses we've administered 90.4 million doses of covid-19 vaccinations meaning at our current pace we're probably going to hit 100 million by this time next week. We're going to be very, very close to that number. If it's not this week, it's going to be very close to after that, uh, getting us ever closer to that 100 million uh, mark. And remember, the Biden administration wanted 100 million doses by 100 days. We're probably going to do 100 million doses in closer to 50 days. I, I said at the time that was a stupid metric because it was very clear we were going to ramp this up, and we are ramping up even faster than anyone anticipated, and we're only getting faster here. Their benchmark was bad. It was dumb. They were being overly pessimistic, and, you know, it just it is what it is. Of those 90 million doses, though, 30.6 million people have had two doses. So a little over 30 million people are fully vaccinated. Another 58.8 million have received at least one dose of the vaccine for partial vaccination. I haven't quite, I can't quite tell from the CDC's numbers how they're factoring in Johnson Johnson into that. I, w- I would think you would throw the one dose into the two dose thing because that's a fully vaccinated person, but who knows how they're going to do that. Either way, 90 million doses administered, more than 90 million doses administered, is a fantastic metric. And remember, we've only had about 28 million confirmed people who have had this through the testing. We obviously know that number is wrong, but we've had a lot. You 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 have that 28 million that's confirmed that have had it versus now the 30 million people who are confirmed, double-dosed, vaccinated, and immune now. That's a pretty big jump that we've made there. And that's a pretty big leap for us to make. If you only count the adult population, so that's 18 and above, ages 18 and above, which is the key metric here because this is not a child's vaccine. It's going out to you know a certain type of person under the age of 18, but for the most part, we're not giving this to kids. So when you're measuring this, it doesn't make sense to measure the full population of the United States, which some people are doing. It makes more sense to measure it against who you're going to be giving this to. So if you measure only 18 and above, 12% of the adult population is now fully vaccinated. That's more than 1 in 10 Americans, and 23% have had at least one vaccine. That's nearly 1 in 4 Americans. So we are really climbing the ladder on the number of people. We're now averaging, as a country, more than 2.1 million doses a day. On Saturday, we had the highest reported number of vaccinations yet, with 2.9 million. So we're getting very close to hitting that magic number, which I think we need to hit, which is closer to 3 million a day. I think we're going to hit this that this next week. You'll probably see lower numbers on Monday and Tuesday just because that is the trend line, but we're getting very close to hitting 3 million. I really think we're going to get that. If you, Even if we don't move anymore from here, if we stick at the current pace of 2.1 million, it would take six months to hit 75% of the United States. 
and I think we're going to hit that number by midsummer. Even the Biden administration had to come out this past week and say, you know, if you if you want a vaccine, you're going to be able to have one by May. That is that a conservative. I think if you want one, you're going to be able to get one probably by the end of the month, no later than April. Really, they should be everywhere by April. There's going to be a slight delay here over this next week because Johnson & Johnson is not going to send out any more, any more vaccines this week, but they are going to send them out the week of the 22nd. So that is when you're going to see another major jump in the, in the number of vaccines. Right now, you're seeing the increase in the initial outflow of Johnson & Johnson vaccines plus an increase in Pfizer and Moderna. The increase from Pfizer and Moderna will continue into next week. And then the following week, you're going to see the big boost from all of them pumping them out all at the same time. And that's about what I expect. So the end, the week of the 22nd, by the end of that week, I think you're going to see everything. People are going to be pushing to have everything opened up because there's just going to be that many vaccines out there. It's going to be easier to do that. So all in all, the news continues to be great on the vaccines front. And to add even more good news, Novavax said this past week that it expects the FDA to grant it emergency use approval by the 1st of May. So we've got probably a fourth vaccine that's going to enter the market here in a few months. Again, if you can also approve AstraZeneca, that would give us five. For whatever reason, the FDA is dragging its feet on AstraZeneca, even though it's being used all across Europe and in the UK and certain countries in Africa. It is a fine vaccine that we should probably have here, but they have not approved it for whatever reason. But if they did, we could have five vaccines moving and cranking them out all at once. And I think it's good. I think it's really good that we have that. If we had if we had all five, that would basically, I mean, with three, you don't have really to worry about manufacturing issues. If you have five, manufacturing issues are not a problem at all because you're just not worried if one of them goes down. You can replace it with another one. So that is where we are. We have so many good vaccines right now that we're not even concerned about a bad batch coming out because we could just get rid of them and then replace it with another company. And that's a good place to be. It's actually the best place to be. We, The United States is in the best position when it comes to these vaccines because we could be in a bad position like the entire European Union right now. In Italy and Poland, their cases are going up again. Their cases and their hospitalizations which suggest they could be hitting a third surge here. And in other parts of the European Union where cases, you're not seeing cases, they're not, they're not going up, but they're not going down either. They're just kind of staying at a moderate place of high. And when you compare that to the United States or you compare it to the UK where cases continue to drop, you don't want to be one of those European countries. So the EU is failing on the vaccine front. In fact, it's actually so bad that right now there's a fight in the EU, specifically with Italy, which is blocking the transport of 250,000 vaccines that were meant to head out to Australia, and Italy isn't letting them leave because they'd like to keep those vaccines for them. So you're seeing these flare-ups between these countries because they're dealing both with the EU, which is doling these things out, and then you're dealing with other countries getting them, and, you know, if it was manufactured in your country, why are you letting it leave? That's kind of that is nationalism thing coming out here. France also is claiming that it has the same right to do the same thing, that it, it doesn't have to let these vaccines leave. They're being nice now, but if they wanted to keep them, they could. So that's kind of what's happening right now. And then the irony is, of course, you have the United Kingdom over here sitting here cranking out these vaccines left and right and getting their people fully vaccinated. They're going to be like us. They're going to be open here by you know late spring, early summer. And you know Brexit is looking pretty good right now. 
because they're able to prove their, these vaccines and get them out the door and not deal with any of the bureaucracy of the EU or fighting over it with any of these other countries. So that's what you're dealing with. So when people say, you know, the vaccine rollout was a disaster, Europe is so much better at handling this, no, they're not. There's not any proof of that. They're fighting over vaccines, and we're looking at the fact that we could have five if we really want to push this. We're probably going to have four by May. We could have five. We're not going to be fighting over it because we've already paid for it, and we've already put our place in line. That is the benefit of being the greatest country in the world, and we are using it in this case. We could also probably use it to earn some goodwill by, after we get everyone vaccinated here, start sending them out to some other countries. That would be great. Earn some goodwill. That's where we're going to be by summer. That's what Operation Warp Speed has done. They, and I'm not even joking about this, you, you know, Operation Warp Speed, that, that is your medical Nobel. That should be the medical Nobel. Everyone involved with that should get the Nobel because it is the greatest modern medical marvel that we have ever seen. We have never produced this. We had never done a coronavirus vaccine ever. We could have five in the United States. And a little, I mean, if you had to know, even if we only have these three, in under a year, it produced three viable vaccines that are wiping it out, not just in the United States, but across the world. That's remarkable. And it could be producing more. We went from, you know, PPE shortages and ventilator shortages to having so many that we were handing them out to other countries. The same thing is about to happen with these vaccines. That is the greatest modern medical marvel that you will ever find. And... History is going to look back on this and say that was the moment things changed when you had Operation Warp Speed come in, because that is what has turned the tide. That has changed everything, and people are going to have to praise it. So, that's where we are. It's all good news. I'm glad to be American, because I would not want to deal with the European Union when it comes to getting a vaccine. That would make me very angry. In fact, that's going to be kind of interesting to watch on the back side of this. Are there going to be populism surges against the EU because of how they handled the vaccines. So that's where we are. Everything is good. That's all for this week. This week's light item is brought to you by the idiots in the national media who praised Andrew Cuomo, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, nonstop, even though he, as we learned this week through several breaking news stories from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, he very purposely covered up the nursing home deaths and was saying that he was, did a good job, even though he was covering up nursing home deaths, because he was the one who sent sick patients into these nursing homes that ended up killing a lot more people. And now everyone seems to be focused on these sexual harassment claims. You know, whatever gets this guy thrown out of office, I don't know that I care at this point, but the real story should be nursing homes. We should not lose sight of that. So in honor of that, Newsbusters put together a clip of all the various news organizations from CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, the whole enchilada, all the times they were praising Andrew Cuomo over the past year. And knowing what we know, I mean, frankly, if you knew what you knew then, you knew he was guilty of all of this. Seeing it all play out now and listening to them praise them should tell you a little bit about media bias. So here is this clip to wrap up the show. David, we're sitting by for Governor Cuomo's press conference, his daily briefing. How would you contrast Cuomo and President Trump's handling of the crisis? Truth versus mendacity. Governor Cuomo um, out there day after day after day, everything Trump isn't, honest, direct, brave. Real leadership of the kind the President of the United States should have provided. Governor Cuomo 
is clearly living in a totally different reality, the actual one, than the president of the United States. Governor Cuomo has become a national leader. For a lot of people, Andrew Cuomo has become the leader of the Democratic Party. He is conveying incredible strength. You spoke to National Guard troops today in a stirring speech that if I wasn't listening carefully, I thought you would sending soldiers off to war. This has been a remarkable show of leadership by Governor Cuomo in recent days. He's providing hope, but not false hope. Governor Cuomo, no. I think, is, is, is one of the heroes on, on the front lines. With all of this adulation that you're getting for doing your job, are you thinking about running for president? Andrew Cuomo, who has a daily television show now uh, and has become, in some ways, the shadow uh, president. Maybe Trump is just a little bit mad that Governor Cuomo has become a kind of acting president. Dealing with hardship actually makes you stronger. That's what Governor Cuomo said earlier today. That's what I'm going to go teach my kids right now at home. Well, that is just absolutely brutal. Just absolutely brutal. They praised him for months, and none of it was true. They just wanted somebody who was a foil to play against Trump. And now that we're looking at this after everything is over, Cuomo is a disaster. He lied his way through it. And Operation Warp Speed, put together by President Trump, is looking better by the day. Quite the turnaround there. So before we wrap up here, I wanted to give a special shout-out to all of the new listeners for making this past month the most listened month for the podcast we had the most listened to podcast prior to this would have been the election day ones for 2020, which, you know, makes sense. There was the pre and the post and everybody was listening to that. Everybody was into politics then. But there's been a surge of people listening. And so I am grateful to have all of you new listeners. You have made us grow exponentially faster. There, I think there's now more people who listen to this than they do even read the newsletter, which is pretty fantastic. So, you know, make sure to sign up for that if you want to read more and find out more about this. Otherwise, continue sharing, continue listening. I'm grateful to hear from you guys. That is all I've got for today's show, though. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter. That is at DvonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. And the newsletter goes out Friday morning. So like I said, make sure you sign up before that and you'll get that next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure you send those five-star reviews, share the show, help us out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.